0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Healthy for Life podcast where we will be discussing maintainable, sustainable, conscious living. I'm your host, Sarah Grace. Thanks for joining me. Hey everyone, welcome back to a new episode of Healthy for Life. I am so glad that you've joined me this week. I have a great show planned for you all with a special guest Dr. Janet Levitin. And I'm really looking forward to chatting with her because she has a ton of knowledge and I'm hoping that she can shed some light on some, some topics with us today and that we can all learn something. So let's get Dr. Janet on here and we'll be chatting. Hi, Dr. Levitin. Thanks so much for joining me. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks
1: for the opportunity to be here today and talk to you and your audience. I'm a holistic pediatrician, which I have been since the 1980s. I work at a place called the Tenpenny Center. Uh, many people have probably heard of Dr. Sherry Tenpenny. It's her center uh, here in the Cleveland, Ohio area. And I've been there for eight, eight eight and a half years or so. Uh, prior to that I had my own solo private practice in Boston, Massachusetts for 25 years. Gosh, um the years have, have gone by. And I've always been a holistic pediatrician from the beginning.
0: Okay, so right from the start, even so you graduated medical school and you went right into more holistic ways of treating people.
1: I did. Um when when I went to medical school, I was pretty young. It was in the late 70s. And I really didn't know what I wanted out of life and what I was getting into. And I was following someone else's dream at the time. Mm-hmm. And when I got into conventional medical school, I realized that I really didn't resonate with it that well, I guess you could say. I didn't like the food. I saw people being fed in hospitals. And I i don't know what I thought I was going to be experiencing, but it was just way too many drugs and too much medicine. So I was sort of having an identity crisis, I guess you could say. And I I actually took a year off of school in the middle to do some soul searching and try to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had to make a decision whether to leave school or whether to go back and finish up. And I decided to go finish, but I made a commitment to myself that I would do something more natural and holistic. And I wasn't sure exactly what shape that would take. But that was my mm-hmm. commitment, and sure enough, I did uh, pursue
0: that. That's awesome! Wow, you were you were really awakened from a young age a long time ago, long before a lot of us were kind of jumping on that bandwagon. That's cool. I
1: was even as a child, I was into health food and natural fibers and more more natural things. I I don't know, I just was always sort of that way. So, and-
0: what inspired you to become a doctor? Just from the beginning?
1: Well, like I said, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life and someone else who was a mentor to me and I was very close to influenced me to become a doctor. I'm not sure if it was actually the right choice for me at the time, but I have made it my own. I'm really glad that I went through everything I went through to become a doctor. But if I knew from the beginning everything it would take, I might not have done it. But, But like I said today, I am glad that I did it. And things you asked about what woke me up, things that woke me up in a further manner was, well, well. first of all, I guess I should say that I went into pediatrics because I didn't really like any of the other specialties in the sense that it was way too many meds and I didn't really like how I saw the patients being treated And I thought, oh, become a pediatrician, you're starting out with a healthy pregnancy for the mothers, um, promoting breastfeeding, healthy nutrition, and raising up healthy young children. Of course, back then, vaccinations wasn't such an ingrained part of the the scene as it is today, or I might have thought differently about it, but it was much more of an elective procedure and there were way fewer vaccines back then. Mm -hmm. And like I said, it was presented more as an elective procedure that you could choose or say no to as you wished. Um, I did see three babies die of sudden infant death syndrome within 24 hours of being vaccinated back in the 1980s. And that also opened up my eyes to the fact that there were some issues with vaccines and that they could trigger some very serious consequences. I didn't know Mm -hmm. everything that I know today about that subject, but... I I was always on alert um, about watching for vaccine reactions. And, you know, I can talk about that more if you want.
0: So was that kind of in, was that in a practice that you were working in at the time? Well, um, one, two of those deaths
1: were in hospitals. Mm -hmm. One of them was when I was a pediatric resident working the overnight shift and being called down to the emergency room for, dead on arrival baby, essentially four month old baby. Another one was in a hospital I was moonlighting at because I used to do moonlighting in pediatric emergency room to sort of support my private practice. And um, that was also in an overnight shift in an emergency room, you know, 2 AM, dead on arrival, four month old baby. And then another one was in a community health center that I, I was also moonlighting at. Thankfully none of them were in my own practice because after seeing the first baby die, of, of SIDS within 24 hours of being vaccinated, I sort of made a policy of not starting vaccines before six months of age, at which time SIDS is less likely to occur.
0: Right. So that definitely kind of started this for you, where you were like probably questioning even more so mainstream medicine and the way in which you know, especially children were being, um, treated and, and what they were being given at the time. And then that kind of continued because to where you are right now, your, um, specialty is still pediatrics, right? But you kind of have your own smaller practice in Sherry Tenpenny's office.
1: That's correct. Yes. I am still a pediatrician and I became a homeopathic doctor. Um, homeopathy is, is a subject that's very close to my heart. I've been a homeopath also since the 1980s, when I needed to look for an area within holistic medicine, you know, or alternative medicine, you could call it, to pursue, I I looked into many different things, you know, midwifery and chiropractic and nutrition and oriental medicine, and then I discovered homeopathy for myself, and I settled on that as my main treatment modality. And so in addition to treating children, I also do treat adults with homeopathy and sometimes do nutritional work with adults as well.
0: Okay. I want to get into a little bit more about what homeopathy is. It, You know, I always wonder, is it homeopathy or homeopathy? <laughs>
1: um, uh, well, I pronounce it homeopathy. And then homeopathy. if okay. you're using it as an adjective, you'd say homeopathic.
0: Okay. So I want to get into that a little bit more. But before we do, let's talk a little bit more about our current medical system. And you experienced probably a lot of mainstream medicine in your training and in medical school and and your experience in different hospitals. And so you've kind of seen both sides now and you're currently treating people with a more holistic approach. So what are some things that we see in our mainstream medical system that are flawed? Like what What is wrong with it, especially right now?
1: Well, I guess before I say what the flaws are as I see them, I, I would say what I think that mainstream medicine does well, which is save lives and treat people in emergencies. If you have a fracture that needs to be repaired or you have a laceration that needs to be sutured, you're having a heart attack, you're in an accident, that is where we really shine in medicine in this country. And you know, if I'm having some kind of an acute problem, I do want to be in an emergency room and get that type of care. However, where we are really failing is in promoting health and in dealing with chronic disease. It's pretty much of a disaster area. I'm not the only one who says something like that. Right. First of all, we're not really looking for the cause of disease. Medicine is, is set up to look at Problems by organ system. So you have cardiologists to deal with heart problems. You have a rheumatologist to deal with joint problems. You have a gastroenterologist to deal with, you know, gastrointestinal, uh, stomach and intestinal issues. And really, this is not a very fruitful type of approach, because what you're doing is identifying a problem, and then you're saying, oh, what medicine can we give to remediate that problem? However, if we would try to look for the source of the problem, that and that's called functional medicine, trying to figure out where has the function of the body gone wrong, what are the causative factors, is it something that you're eating? Is it something that your body is lacking nutrition-wise? Is it stress? Is it as an environmental toxin? These, this is the way we should be looking at things and trying to remove the causative factors, um, replete any new deficiencies that are there, improve people's nutrition, improve people's environment. That is how we're going to promote health. I mean if you look at medicine the US has not quite 5% of the world's population yet we take 65 to 70% of the drugs so the medic- the <laughs> prescribed drugs so right there you can see that there is a big problem
0: Exactly Yeah I mean what do you think that doctors are not taught to look at the cause and, and that functional aspect, or do they not have time to treat patients that way in their practices because of, uh, insurance and, you know, you need to get them in and get them out or is it just, is it a lack of training and understanding of that area? Um,
1: I think it's a combination. I think there is definitely a lack of training in the early years in medical school, um, there are courses taught in biochemistry and physiology and some of the basics of how the body works. But then those subjects are actually never really applied when you come around to medicine. Maybe if you're in a very technical specialty, such as nephrology, which is um, a kidney specialty, you might get into some physics. Although I've even heard that that nephrologists used to be trained in all of the, the physics and the inner workings of the kidney, but they, they aren't even anymore. It's more about, once again, make a diagnosis and give people drugs and procedures. So I think that the training is really lacking. And then there is, of course, the time element going to a functional medicine doctor, they're going to spend a lot more time with you. They may also not take insurance because insurance doesn't pay for the length of appointment that they do. So those type of doctors may be, you know, fee for service. On the other hand, they are working for you and they're not working for the benefit of an insurance company or following the guidelines of an insurance company.
0: Yeah, I know like with my, my actually my daughter's pediatrician, he doesn't take health insurance. And so I go in there and I get a good, 30, 45 minutes, even sometimes an hour with him. And granted it'll cost. And that's kind of a shame because a lot of people can't afford sometimes to pay out of pocket. So they're kind of left with that, having to go to whoever they can and spend that 15 minutes with them. They get kind of shuffled in and shuffled out. And often it's like they're slapped with a prescription drug. And I think, I think a lot of people want more, they would like a better alternative, but they don't necessarily know where to go and how to find that.
1: Well, what you say, Sarah, is really true. And that's something that does make me feel really bad that there are people who can't afford or possibly don't even know that alternatives exist. I mean, it's kind of analogous to the term food deserts where people living in an inner city or in a poorer neighborhood don't have access to good food because there's just not the the stores that sell organic food or healthy food and could they afford it if the store was even there. So that's, that is a really sad reality.
0: And I know you've done a lot of volunteer work, you said, right, which can help in that way. But at this point, I don't know how we can change a lot of the system other than really encouraging the people that can to look for better alternatives and to seek out like somebody like yourself or an acupuncturist, someone who's looking at the body as a whole.
1: That's true. And I'm I'm really hoping that we're going to see a change in our society where this type of thinking becomes more, um, ingrained in within more people. I know that many doctors are dissatisfied. Lots of doctors leave the profession of medicine. There's a pretty high suicide rate among doctors because doctors don't like doing twelve to fifteen minute appointments, and they don't like prescribing all of these drugs that they can see aren't working. It's it's mm-hmm. just a, a travesty, right? They just don't know another way. However,
0: right? It's like they're kind of just stuck in the system, and I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I I feel like there's this kind of this persona that like your doctor is the, the end all be all and whatever they tell you, you don't question, you believe a hundred percent and you just do what they say. So if they say, here's a prescription for this or take that, or let's inject you with this, you don't question it. A doctor said it. And I feel like I'm hoping anyways, that there's more of an awakening to questioning that they don't have all the answers. And I feel like also, unless they continue to do updated research constantly, you know, after graduating medical school, do they even know all the time what the best thing is or what the latest evidence is showing? You know, I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, I I agree with the issue about education because, many times patients are coming to me with questions and I have to say, gee, that's something that I just don't know about. Now, many doctors, especially doctors in conventional medicine, will put something down if they've never heard of it. But the the more honest answer is, gee, I've never heard of that. That's something that I would need to look into to understand the, the benefits or lack of benefits of it. So I'm constantly learning about new things from my patients. And I really encourage people to take charge of their own health. I, the at the root of the word doctor is teacher. A doctor is there to teach and help and guide and make suggestions. I do my best to tell people what I think will be the most helpful for them, but I want them to question and I want them to seek out what's going to work for them. Mm You know, At the same time, oftentimes the interventions that I'm recommending are extremely safe. So we haven't talked too much about homeopathy yet, but when I recommend a homeopathic remedy, I I know that in the vast majority of cases, the worst thing that's going to happen is it's going to fail to help, but it's not going to harm the person because um, it's completely safe. And that's why I feel good about homeopathy. One of the reasons I feel good about it, because I know I'm not going to be overdosing a child on a toxic medication.
0: Right. And that's a thing often with prescription drugs and that sort of thing is I feel like the they may treat a symptom, but do they cause another problem? Well, yes,
1: I was just hearing a term that a doctor was using yesterday on a, on a podcast that I was watching, and he was talking about manufactured illness, that most, most disease that we have is manufactured. It's manufactured by treatments that we are giving or by food or toxins or something in the environment, that not that much of disease is actually completely natural,
0: That's unbelievable when you think about it. And it it gives you power to know, okay, we can fix it. You know, if we take control of our health, Uh, but then it also, it's kind of sad when you, when you look at the bigger picture of how many problems that we currently have with our health that they're our own fault. A lot of them. What do you think is really the potential risk of prescription drug use, and when is it absolutely necessary to prescribe? Like for you, when do you say, okay, I'm going to prescribe a, a prescription drug?
1: I, I don't do prescription drugs very often. I, especially since I'm dealing with dealing with children, they're using. Using fewer drugs anyway, but um, probably the main category of medicines that I would prescribe are antibiotics. And whereas a typical doctor might be prescribing them several times a day, I'm prescribing them probably several times a year, um, because I can treat many types of infections safely and effectively with homeopathy. You know, for example, ear infections. There, that's the most common type of infection that children have, and I treat. 90 plus percent of them successfully with homeopathy, both acute ear infections and then chronic ear infections, or that tendency to have them recurring. You know, homeopathy might not be the only thing I use, but it's definitely a key tool in, in working with that. So occasionally, if homeopathy isn't working or a person has a very serious ear infection, or something along those lines, I may prescribe an antibiotic, just not very often. The other thing that I do prescribe sometimes is um, medicines for asthma because what I tell people in a situation like that, you can get into an an acute event where a child isn't breathing properly. So you want to have a plan A to heal up asthma, which is your long-term plan for curing the asthma and helping the child move to the point where they don't even really have it anymore. But in the meantime, if there is an exacerbation on a particular day and a child isn't breathing properly, you can use some rescue medicines to come in there and help with the breathing. I do try to stay away from the the steroids, which are typically given long-term and are you know, put the child under a long-term suppression. Yeah. Steroids are a, a, a class of drugs that I really don't like to see used very often at all. And especially not long-term.
0: Right. And probably, right. If you, if you have to prescribe something, it's always with the goal of it being a temporary thing that you're finding a, a better solution for that's strengthening the body versus potentially making them dependent or breaking down their body Oh from yeah. the use of it. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. So- Just to take that Hmm. asthma example, I treated um, a young boy recently within the past few months. He was having ear infections and he had asthma and he was on a lot of different meds. So we slowly... And I've weaned him off of some of the meds. I put him on a natural inhalation, which is glutathione. Um, I gave him some supplements. I gave him some homeopathy. And he still does have a rescue inhaler on hand, but I got a message from the mother. Oh, my gosh, he's doing so much better. He hasn't had any ear infections. We can now go hiking in the woods without having to use the inhaler, which we were always having to use when we did any type of exercise. And the whole child's health is transforming. So that child is having an upward spiral in his health instead of if he was taking drugs, he's going to slowly be spiraling downwards in his health. One thing leads to another. You're on one drug. There are side effects. You need other drugs. Your body's getting depleted. Your body's under stress. It's just not the right way
0: exactly that's awesome I love hearing stories like that <laughs> um, oh, yeah. So
1: <laughs>
0: yeah that's so cool let's talk a little bit then about what is homeopathy like for especially for people who don't know and are have not heard of it before can you explain it a little bit about what it is and and how it works
1: sure I can try to give a give a little summary um sometimes I do a whole one-to-one-and-a-half-hour lecture just on what is homeopathy, but just to be Mm -hmm. succinct. It's a system of medicine that was developed by a German physician over 200 years ago. Uh, His name was Samuel Hahnemann. And he discovered through some experiments experiments that he was doing that substances that could cause a set of symptoms could also cure a set of symptoms. And the way it all started out, it's actually kind of interesting because it started out with quinine, which is related to hydroxychloroquine, which is kind of coming up a lot today in the news because it's a treatment and a preventive for malaria and also possibly a treatment for COVID-19. But at any rate, he (sighs) he discovered, he, he questioned why quinine was a treatment for malaria. And he read in a text that it's because it was bitter and had a tonic effect on the stomach, and that didn't really make much sense to him because many things are bitter and can have a tonic effect on the stomach. So he decided to take some quinine, and lo and behold, he developed the symptoms of malaria. So by taking the, su- the substance, he developed the set of symptoms that the substance can also cure. So that's the, the root of the word homeopathy. It's similar suffering, so we're looking for a substance that has an affinity for the symptom expression that the person is going through. So for example, if I see a child with an ear infection, I'm going to see is that child, you know, weepy, needy or and clingy or are they irritable and upset and having a tantrum? You know, what's the nature of the fever? Are they experiencing a lot of pain or not too much pain? Are they thirsty or not thirsty? So I'm going to look at the as much of the symptom complex as I can and then I'm going to choose a homeopathic remedy that fits with that child's symptoms. So instead of just pulling something off the shelf, like one out of five antibiotics that I have access to, I'm going to look in my homeopathic references and pick something that actually fits the symptoms of the person and not just randomly selected. And that's what what makes it work because it has an affinity for the person. Now, the other thing I should mention is that when we prepare homeopathic medicines, when I say we, I should say when the homeopathic pharmacy, which is, Licensed and regulated, prepares homeopathic medicines. Um, they're put through a series of dilution, a series of dilutions. So the dilutions will take out the toxicity of the medicine. And which, e- with, with each dilution, the solution is put through a shaking a procedure called, which is called succussion. And the shaking creates a dynamic formula within within the solution. And that's why homeopathy, number one, has no toxicity. And number two, works on the dynamic body, works on the energy body, which is really where all disease starts. It starts in our energy field, and then it manifests in the physical body. So home, homeopathy is kind of treating at that dynamic level.
0: Very cool. And what's interesting to me, though, is isn't the same Philosophy behind homeopathy similar to what they try to do with vaccines. In in with some vaccines, almost trying to, I mean, I guess with vaccines, they're trying to create an immune response in the body to what they're injecting you with, so that when you are exposed to it, your body will fight it off. Well, or that build is- up the antibodies.
1: Yeah, that that analogy has been used, and also. The analogy has been used with, with allergy shots because you're injecting a small amount of the allergen and kind of increasing it in some manner to supposedly help the person develop immunity, uh, so to speak, to allergens. However, that's, it's away from being homeopathic because there's much more of the actual substance included in vaccines and in allergy shots. And those uh, injections can have profound and even fatal side effects.
0: Right. Along Uh, with a lot of other toxins in there that... There's a lot of other toxins in there. Yeah.
1: It it could be a good time for me to mention that aside... branch of homeopathy is called homeoprophylaxis, prophylaxis Mm -hmm. meaning prevention. Uh, And it is an alternative to conventional vaccines that, believe it or not, has been around since before the vaccine era. The same person I mentioned before, Samuel Hahnemann, who was the founder of homeopathy, was treating people with scarlet fever uh, back then in the I guess it would be the late 1700s, there were no antibiotics. So if you had scarlet fever, it could be fatal. It's a strep infection. And today, an antibiotic would be prescribed for it. And actually, I. As a side note, I should say that strep infections are one of the things that I often do prescribe an antibiotic for because they can have some pretty bad after effects. But anyway, Mm -hmm. getting back to um, before the antibiotic era, uh, Samuel Hahnemann was treating people with scarlet fever with homeopathy. Then he had the thought, maybe I could treat people who haven't come down with it yet and prevent them from getting it. And sure enough, that worked but it had no toxicity, such as a vaccine. Now, when when vaccines first came in, the first one was smallpox. It was Mm -hmm. called an inoculation. It was called arm-to-arm inoculation. So if I had smallpox, I would cut open a pustule on my arm, and you would cut your arm, and I would put my arm up to your arm. And I could possibly give you immunity to smallpox, but more likely I would give you smallpox and possibly give you syphilis, tuberculosis, or leprosy or something like that. And Mm -hmm. it was just really a completely disgusting procedure. And many people revolted against it at the time. However, there was a homeopath, his name was James Compton Burnett, and he developed a homeoprophylaxis method that involved that dilution and um, shaking procedure that I was talking about. And he used it on himself and his patients and his family, and he had no cases of smallpox and no deaths. So all the way back then, 200 years ago, homeoprophylaxis was safe and effective, more safe and more effective than the vaccine was. And this is just a buried piece of history that makes me feel, well, outraged that people don't know about it and that that some history is suppressed.
0: Right, exactly. I'm sure even back then he was probably kind of silenced because I feel like it even started to become controversial then. It's it's true. Um he was. He he wrote a book about it, which is a really interesting little book to read
1: from, you know, around 1800. <laughs> It seems old timey, but it's actually um, relevant today. And homeoprophylaxis can be used. It has been used very successfully in Cuba for leptospirosis and other infections. And there's research papers that show that it's been used successfully in Brazil for meningococcal disease, which is a serious bacterial infection that can cause meningitis and other um, serious problems. So homeoprophylaxis is, is amazing. And we actually offer a program in it at my office, at least up to this point. We we haven't been shut down yet.
0: And do you find that a lot of people bring their kids for it?
1: A fair number. Um, I always present it as an elective procedure. I tell people, I encourage you to look into this, but it's something you can choose to say yes or no to. I don't, I don't push it on people, but I do encourage people to look into it. We've been running the program for um, maybe six, seven years, and we've probably entered, you know... Two hundred to two hundred and fifty children into the program, something like that. Not not massive numbers, but but you know su- substantial numbers for me.
0: And do you find that you guys do this with all of the same diseases that we vaccinate for?
1: Well, I do. I base my program around the programs of Dr. Isaac Golden, who's a homeopath from Australia, who's been doing homeoprophylaxis for probably something like thirty five years, and. I believe he created his program to kind of mimic a vaccine program because people are so programmed about vaccines and they're so triggered about the possibility of the illnesses that vaccines are supposed to prevent, but in many cases don't actually really prevent that mm-hmm. we want to offer something that's, that's an alternative that's perfectly safe. And I, I don't have research or real science to back up this claim, but is probably more effective than vaccines. I mean, for example, there's an article that I downloaded in the last year or two. It's called something like the 117-year Odyssey of Pertussis and Pertussis Vaccines. And it's not from a flaky journal. It's from the Journal of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society, so a well-reputed journal. And basically what the article says as is that the acellular Pertussis vaccine that's part of the DTaP, which has been used for the last probably about 20 years, yep. if you take, give, giving that vaccine to children causes a lifetime increased susceptibility to pertussis infection, and there's essentially nothing that can be done about it. So what they say in the article is that the vaccine it has actually has a negative effectiveness. You are more likely to have pertussis and on top of that, have a silent infection that you don't even really know about, but that you can unknowingly be spreading to other people. So that, that is just blows my mind and is completely outrageous. And people don't know about it unless they've taken the time to really dig into the science and not, no, nothing like that will happen with homeoprophylaxis. So,
0: right. And it's a great alternative, I guess, for people that are fearful of, uh, what could happen if I don't vaccinate because maybe they're, you know, kind of still unsure and I I guess I just look at a lot of the diseases, viruses that we're vaccinating for, and I say to myself, "Is the the risk reward there?" I mean, it, measles, for instance. You know, when my dad was coming up, he had measles, and it was similar to chicken pox, and it sucked. And he was home for a week. And and of course, there's always going to be those imu- immune compromised people that it may affect differently. But chicken pox measles whooping cough what is it diphtheria tetanus if you go to the the hospital you're going to be given a tetanus shot if you did step on a nail regardless of you know having the vaccine right so it's like I guess I kind of wonder are a lot of these things that we're vaccinating for are they really of the concern that I think we're putting on them you know
1: well, you bring up a really good point, Sarah. I've given a lot of lectures about vaccines. I call it vaccine controversies. And one of the things I do is I break the various infections that there's vaccines for into different categories. And, you know, the first vaccine, the first category I talk about is there's no way your child can catch that disease. So we were talking before about procedures and drugs creating problems. Well, there's a big problem in our country, and it's been going on since 1991 when they started giving hepatitis B vaccines to one-day-old babies in the hospital. So if you think about hepatitis B, how how does one catch it? Either through sexual contact with an infected person, sharing needles with an infected person, or possibly if you work in a lab with body fluids and you have a needle stick. So what is a one-day-old baby doing that could cause them to catch hepatitis B? And the answer is nothing. So there's essentially no way your child can catch hepatitis B. And there's absolutely no need for that vaccine, possibly with the rare exception of a mother who has an active case of hepatitis B, which isn't that common uh, thing in this country. So Mm -hmm. the other infections that your child essentially cannot catch are diphtheria and polio because we haven't had cases in this country since maybe the 1970s. So then the next category you already alluded to, and, and that's the category of, well, gee, that infection isn't so bad anyway. And I would put measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, and hepatitis A into that category. I may be the same age as your dad. And when I grew up, I had measles, mumps, rubella, and chicken pox. And they weren't <laughs> that bad. Yeah, you... Got out of school for a few days, and you you moved on. I barely even remember having them, and right. I developed my natural lifelong immunity. Maybe not to chickenpox because that has a little different dynamics, but to definitely to measles and rubella, I still have that immunity today. And the other thing that often gets overlooked is that after viral infections, oftentimes children take those next developmental steps, it may be helping to program the immune system in a certain way that's helping to um, prevent occurrence of cancer in the future. And children are, it sort of used to be viewed as sort of a rite of passage and children were taking those next developmental steps after coming through those infections. And we're taking that away from children. So yeah, so we have the categories of there's no way your child can catch it. And hey, even if your child does catch it, it's not so serious anyway, and can be treated with homeopathy to help them through it. You know, then then we have a category of infections that are of a more serious nature that are so low incidence that the vaccine is probably harming and killing more people than it's actually preventing infections of. And that I put into that category um, pneumococcal, also known as Prevnar Haemophilus influenza B or Hib, and meningococcal. I mean, I don't make light of those infections at all because they are very serious. However, when you start creating a vaccine program, you create a lot of problems with the pneumococcus, for example. Initially, it started out as the pneumococcal 7, and it targeted the seven most prevalent disease-causing strains of pneumococcus. Well, then the bacteria mutated, and new strains came to the fore and became you know, more likely to Cause infections, and then it was the pneumococcal 13, and now they're working on the pneumococcal 25. So there's just no end to it. The fact that it's so low incidence in my own private practice, I've only right. had one case of pneumococcal meningitis in all the 30 some years I've been practicing. And but the punchline to the whole story was is the child, you know, the child had to be hosp- hospitalized and treated, and that's a whole story unto itself. But when they did the strain typing on his pneumococcus it was one that isn't even included in the Prevnar-13. So the vaccine would not have prevented it from happening. And that's right. one of the problems of vaccine yes, programs.
0: Absolutely. We could literally go on for a solid hour of just talking about this, but the the takeaway really for me and, and why... I I have this podcast is to have open, honest conversations about these things. And really, when you move aside your opinion or your emotion, and you just look at the facts, you know, just listening to you talk, where do a little research as a parent, find out what are the, the vaccines that, uh, or the viruses and diseases that we're vaccinating for? What are they? How likely are they? What, what's the concern for my child if they get them? And then make the best informed decision with that information. Because a lot of people, you know, they're just going again with that kind of white coat syndrome. They go into their doctor, they trust what their doctor is telling them, they don't question. Unfortunately, they no one's going over a true informed consent with them. They're not being told potential risks and side effects and they get, you know, go on their way after that. And it, it's, it's sad because we often can't have these types of conversations because people get angry and emotional. And if maybe they have vaccinated their child, they then start to feel that guilt And like, but I did it and I could have been putting my child at, you know, risk. And so it's, I think it is, I want to get away from that so badly and be able to have more of these kind of conversations. And if you've done the research and you've looked at everything and you still decide that it's the right thing for you, then fine, let's talk about the risk reward and what's actually in these things and, and what we are actually vaccinating for.
1: You're absolutely right Sarah. I mean people come in to me and and I tell them, "Hey, don't trust what I'm saying to you. Look into it. Don't don't take what I'm saying as the gospel. I'm I'm doing my best for you, but that doesn't mean you have to believe it. People really have to do research on their own because they won't get it from the mainstream. And and speaking of the mainstream, the mainstream media, uh, I'm just getting more and more disgusted with the stories I'm hearing on the news. I mean, just talking a little bit about coronavirus, you can't even listen to the mainstream media. It's like national public radio or something like that. It's just complete misinformation. You have to go to alternative sources. Yes. It's just a necessity these days.
0: The sad part is, people are reading headlines and that's currently what's going on with COVID-19 and how people are freaked out and in fear because they're only reading headlines. And if you're wanting to do any kind of research on vaccines and the best way to, to deal with some of these viruses and diseases, you, you cannot go off of headlines. And unfortunately, a lot of CBS, NBC, ABC, they're being bought and paid for by a lot of these pharmaceutical companies pay for their advertising and they're not allowed to put certain information out so and it's like often if you if you see a headline on facebook for a study. You have to see who put the study out and who funded it because if it was put out by a vaccine manufacturer, it's not likely they're going to tell you that their vaccine may cause, you know, like death or uh, a a stroke or seizures or whatever. Of course, they're not going to want to tell you that. They're going to tell you the only the good things about it. So it's so important that when you're doing the research, you can't go off of news headlines and you can't go off of research that has been funded by the companies that stand to profit from the very product that they're talking about.
1: Oh, those are amazing points. And so, so true. So true. I mean, one of the things that's really Getting to me and really burning me up is all you hear in the mainstream media is we're going to be on lockdown and then dot 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 until there's a vaccine. I mean, do you hear them talking about improving your health status? Do you hear them talking about hey, you should be eating really healthy right now? They talk a little bit about exercise. You should be trying to de, de- stress. You should get your sleep, and you you hear no mention of supplements, vitamin C, vitamin mm-hmm. D, vitamin A. These are crucial nutrients and. We're not getting them from our food like we should. So we need to take some supplements. You, you can save people's lives with supplements, vitamin C. It's it's R- just right. a it really Right. Is-
0: well, yeah, if they were sitting there saying to us, I, I recommend you going to your doctor or your practitioner and uh, you know, getting on a vitamin D supplement and a, a vitamin C, vitamin A, and there would be no drama there would be no fear, and there would be none of those catchy headlines, and people would be like, "Eh, you know." I, I think people want almost to have something to be excited about, or or to, to to be fearful or dramatic. It's like they cling to that at times. I feel like, and the sad part is the recommendations that this whole stay-at-home and quarantine is obviously people are not getting outdoors. They're probably gaining more weight. They're wanting to snack and eat junk foods. You know, they're they're uh We couldn't even go to the beach until this week in Florida. And all the things that are good for us are kind of, it's like opposite when you're being stuck at home. Yeah.
1: And there's, I don't think there's any science to support the stay at home or the masks for that reason. Anyone that I trust and I'm listening to, you know, uh, Many doctors and scientists are saying the same thing. None of that is percolating through to the mainstream media, though you're seeing it on various podcasts or interviews or things like that. You know very profound stuff is coming out, just not through the mainstream media and exactly. one thing I mention is that I've been internet um interacting with a international group of homeopaths, and we have been successfully treating. COVID cases. We've worked up a group of remedies for the epidemic and um, we're giving them, I've treated myself one diagnosed case and one diagnosed case and a few undiagnosed cases. you know, through phone calls and Skype with success. So homeopathy is doing great. It's great for viral illnesses. It's great for illnesses.
0: Right. That is such good news. What Mm. would you say then? For the parents that are listening and even for them, for people in general, if you don't have children, you can obviously apply these principles to your life. But especially parents, because we worry so much about our kids and it is so hard to see your kids sick. I mean, it's one of the worst things. But if somebody is say they they haven't found a homeopathic doctor and they are going to their pediatrician, what would you recommend to them as far as informed consent goes? And when they're sitting with their doctor, they have the right to ask for um, the inserts to vaccines and the ingredients and the risks and all of that, right? As far as I'm concerned, they do, yes. I mean, what I say is...
1: If someone is not answering your questions, if someone is not treating you respectfully, and if someone is trying to force you or pressure you into taking unwanted procedures that you're not ready to say yes to, I would not continue seeing that person. I mean, I think doctors, many doctors have lost sight of the fact that they are supposed to be working for you. They're a consultant that you're hiring. You're not there to fulfill their agenda. And we have really lost sight of that in our society. So if someone never, ever say yes to an elective procedure that you do not agree with or you do not feel that you're informed enough about. It's one of the things I've been telling people. People have been asking me, what if it comes around to, you know, forced vaccines? And I just have to say, we have to stand our ground and say that we will never accept an unwanted elective procedure. And we will just don't go to those offices. Don't go to those people. You know, the marketplace, let the marketplace speak, go to those doctors who are respecting you, respecting your choices, uh, conversing with you and providing you with information that works for you.
0: Exactly. Do you have any books maybe that, that someone could buy in order to kind of read up on vaccines and vaccine ingredients and and this sort of thing?
1: Well, my, um, my boss, Dr. Tenpenny has a couple of books and then she's got some eBooks and those can be found, I'm pretty sure at our website. I myself don't have um, books, but I do have a fair number of blogs on the Tenpenny site, which is um, tenpennyimc.com. It's T-E-N-P-E-N-N-Y-I-M-C, which stands for Integrative Medical Center tenpennyimc.com. Dr. Tenpenny has a book called Saying No to Vaccines, and she has a a book on bird flu. She also has interviews, a lot of interviews online. Someone else whose work I love, who has two books and many, many YouTubes on her YouTube channel is Dr. Suzanne Humphries. Have you read any of her work or seen any Oh my God, yes. I
0: just, I think she's amazing. Yeah, and her book, um, Dissolving Illusions. What an incredible book. Yeah, she goes
1: into uh the hidden history of smallpox and polio and her her YouTube's are, are awesome and she you mentioned tetanus vaccines a little while ago. She has a whole uh, presentation about tetanus and how it's not everything we think and vitamin C can be curative and preventive and anyway, there's a lot of information out there to be to be gained through just those couple of people.
0: Yeah. And then what about as far as finding a homeopathic doctor in your area? Is there a website for, for that?
1: Well, if you want an MD homeopath, there is an organization called the American Institute of Homeopathy. Unfortunately, it's really very small. There's not too many members. You could go to their site to look for a homeopath. Otherwise, there's also the National Center for Homeopathy, and they're sort of a clearinghouse for homeopaths. You may be able to find a listing there that may be a non-MD, but non-MDs can do very well at homeopathy if they have put in the time and studied it properly. Right. So those then, are the, probably the best resources I know for that.
0: Okay. And then you, do you work remotely with people?
1: I do do some remote work. Um, I can't really do diagnosing across state lines, but if someone is coming to me just for homeopathic advice and they already have a diagnosis or they don't need a diagnosis to be made, you know, an official medical diagnosis. Um, I can see people via Skype or or something like that, some type of platform like that.
0: And I cannot say enough, and I've said it before, but I really, really recommend to people to have somebody in your back pocket who you can call on that's either uh, an ND, a naturopathic doctor, someone like yourself, uh, a homeopathic MD, a acupuncturist, somebody that you that will listen to you and truly, find ways to help you, your body be strong enough to deal with whatever it is that it's facing, whether it's your immune system or a virus, or, I mean, my beliefs, I would go to one of those doctors for cancer, for anything that came up in, if it was me or my children before I would just go to, you know, whoever was say under my insurance. Um, I just feel like, having someone there in your corner like that really takes the fear and the doubt away. And especially at times like this right now, where a lot of people are making decisions that are based in fear.
1: Well, I'm, I'm with you, Sarah. And it's great to have that person sort of in your back pocket before you really need them. You want to know, not be scrounging around for somebody to be in contact with when you're in an emergency type situation. You want to know who that is in advance.
0: Right. And that's what I've been saying all along too. in in my previous podcast, when it comes to your, your immune system, you know, and your health, because I think right now, a lot of people are kind of like, oh no, I am not that healthy or I'm overweight, or I have a comorbidity. And they're saying that's what COVID-19 is, is attracted to, <laughs> And they're scrounging to get healthy and try to, you know, cause I would see people in the grocery store, like they've got their bag of Reese's, but they were throwing in some emergency on the belt. Like I heard vitamin C maybe. And there's like a lot of mixed information, but it's like, you don't want to be left scrounging for your, to, to make up, you know, for your health. You want to be more preventative mindset, right? Uh,
1: I, I agree with you. Yeah, I have so many supplements at home and it's not like I take them all every day and sometimes I even take a break from them. But I want to have my vitamin C and D and A and iodine and those things on hand. I also got my own colloidal silver generator so I could make my own colloidal silver at home. And I related to that, I heard a horrible thing, which is that Whole Foods was throwing away colloidal silver because it wasn't an approved or vetted treatment for COVID and people were buying it. So they were actually throwing it away.
0: Oh, no way. I'm trying to detox- I'm really disappointed from- with Whole Foods lately, to be well, honest I'm with you. Well, I'm trying to detox
1: from Amazon or get get off of A- Amazon to the extent that I can. And Whole Foods is, right. of course, owned by Amazon. So um, I'm I'm stopping shopping there.
0: Yeah. I don't mind saying corporations, Yeah. Massive corporations. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us this week. It's, it's been great. And I could totally have you back for another whole episode of topics like this. And so I really appreciate your time. Tell people where they can find you on social media and what your website is.
1: Uh, The website again is, 10pennyimc.com. Um, I don't have my own website, personal website just now, but I'm trying to get one. And my blogs are on the 10penny IMC site. And I do have a Facebook page that is Janet Leviton at 10penny IMC. Um, I have a personal page as well. I've been posting more on that than on my 10penny IMC page, but I have to get back to the 10penny IMC, ten, Janet Leviton at 10penny IMC and start doing some more posts there.
0: Okay. Not on Twitter. So yet. I will oh, okay. I will put uh Janet's uh Dr. Janet's information in the show notes on this episode, everyone, so you can check them out, any links to reach out to her and um I'm sure she would be willing to conversate, answer any questions, or if you just want to follow her even on Facebook and um read some of her blogs on the, the website too. So I think it's a great resource. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. But um, yeah, thanks so much for joining me again. I really appreciate your time.
1: Yeah. And thanks for the opportunity to be here. Really enjoyed it.
0: All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that long talk that we just had. Man, a lot of information. I feel like I could have gone on for another hour with her, but I really hope that the takeaway from this is that you are motivated to do your research, to ask questions, to make informed decisions, that it's okay to question the norm. It's okay to ask your doctor, is this safe? Is this effective? Can I see the vaccine insert? Can I, can you tell me a little bit about the risks of that medication or the potential side effects? And if that doctor is not willing to do that with you, then maybe they're not the doctor for you. It's okay to question and to get a second opinion. If you've been given a diagnosis, it doesn't mean that you just have to take it and just go where they tell you to go. You can question, you can look for second opinions. You need to find people who give you that good feeling in your spirit to know that you're being heard and that you and your child are being cared for. So I really hope that that is the takeaway from today's show, that there is unfortunately a lot of corruption in our medical industry and that well-meaning people go into medical school and go into being doctors, but sometimes, you know, they're up against a wall when it comes to how they can treat their patients, or there are other people who may just be caught up in making money. And so you have to be the one to discern and to make the right decisions for yourself and for your family. Thanks again for joining me this week. I really appreciate it. And you know, do me a favor, share this episode with a friend, share it on your social media and subscribe to uh, my podcast. That would be awesome. Anyways, thanks again for joining me and I will be talking to you all next week.